the test is not well-defined, it's not clear, it's not objective, and I think it's going to be difficult to implement and enforce this law. The fact of the matter is that we've become a a two-job and three-job economy, uh, sometimes because of uh, the workers' wishes, but very frequently uh, because uh, workers have to work two or three jobs to uh, keep bread on the table and to foster some kind of uh, environment of opportunities for their children. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court. I have two books out called The Sled and How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to welcome our sponsors, Blue Jay Legal and Clio. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. Learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com, bluejlegal.com. And our other sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. For our show today, this month, California state senators passed Assembly Bill 5, better known as AB5, California's Gig Economy Worker Bill. AB5 requires workers previously classified as independent contractors to be classified as employees, affording them greater labor protections of minimum wage laws and sick leave. AB5 now heads to Governor Gavin Newsom for signature, which is expected. Well, according to the bill's author, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, a Democrat from San Diego, AB5's aim is to provide a steady income, health benefits, and other protections for contract employees like Lyft or Uber drivers. Supporters of the bill praise the benefits of AB5 and opponents like Uber and Lyft argue that AB5 would impact the flexibility and freedom of workers. States like Massachusetts, Virginia, and New Jersey already have laws similar to AB5 in place. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss California's AB5 gig work bill, the gig economy, and the impact on the workplace. And to do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our first guest is Diane Mulcahy. She's an adjunct lecturer at the Entrepreneurship Division at Babson College. She created and teaches the MBA class Entrepreneurship and the Gig Economy, which was named by Forbes.com as one of the top 10 most innovative business school classes in the country. Diane is the author of The Gig Economy from HarperCollins, a best-selling book on Amazon that has been translated into five languages and featured widely in national media. And welcome to the show, Diane. Thanks for having me. And our next guest is William B. Gould IV. He is the Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School. He's a prolific scholar of labor and discrimination law. Professor Gould has been an influential voice in worker management relations for more than 50 years, and he served as chairman of the National Labor Relations Board and subsequently chairman of the California Agriculture Labor Relations Board. Welcome to the show, William. Thank you. Good to be with you. 
And as we talked about in the very beginning, today we're going to be talking about uh, California Assembly Bill 5, which is also uh, similar laws exist in other states. But William, I think we will start with you and just give us a general context of what AB5 is trying to do and the difference between independent contractors and employees. Yes. Well, of course, traditionally uh, in here in California and in most jurisdictions, uh, independent contractors are excluded from uh, the coverage of uh, basic uh, labor laws. And uh, the AB5 really results from uh, a growing inequality uh, in our society between uh, rich and poor, a uh, greater use of the independent contractor exception from employee status, beginning really in the 1970s in uh, trucking and then in the taxis and uh, other forms of transportation, and then, of course, more recently in connection with uh, a wide variety of relationships, uh, some of them falling under the so-called gig economy uh, uh, category. And um, what they, uh, what the bill is designed to do is to uh, provide uh, a fairly uh, rigid test uh, to under which employee status is, uh, as a practical matter, presumed uh, unless uh, the employer does not control uh, the worker involved uh, and unless uh, the uh, worker is uh, not performing the uh, essence or core essence of the employer's uh, business and um, the third character factor being does the uh, individual really have a separate business of their own and uh, as uh, for instance uh, in my house when a plumber or electrician comes in to uh, fix things up he clearly and uh, or she clearly is uh, an independent contractor that's in essence what AB5 is about it doesn't touch uh, the business of the right to organize because uh, uh, traditionally that's been a matter of federal law although very recently the NLRB has excluded the drivers of Lyft and uh, uh, Uber from uh, federal law coverage, and California is now engaged in a discussion about whether it, in light of that exclusion, should or could assert jurisdiction for labor relations purposes. Well, Diane, William was talking about the gig economy a little bit, and that, that's definitely an area that you've uh, mastered. So kind of give us what the definition of the gig economy means and how AB5 is going to affect it. Yeah, I mean, the way that I talk about and define the gig economy is if you're not a full-time employee in a full-time job. So it's a fairly broad definition that includes, you know, consultants, independent contractors, freelancers, and on-demand workers. I mean, this bill is really targeted at on-demand workers, primarily those that work for gig economy platform companies like Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, uh, and Instacart. So it's, it's much more narrow in that sense. Um, there are many exemptions that are included in the, in the law that really narrow the bill's focus to the platform companies. Oh, the bill is not, no, bill is not uh, uh, by any means uh, primarily focused upon or limited to the platform uh, companies. Uh, th- they happen to be at the heart of the dispute, and they have, you know, publicity-wise, attracted a great deal of attention, um, and uh, you can say provided the kind of tipping point for the legislation. By the way, if uh, 
part-time employees were, uh, you know, independent contractors, goodness, the, uh, an even bigger chunk of the uh, uh, workforce would be uh, independent contractors. Uh, I think what the gig economy has done is to, you know, provide uh, the kind of uh, expand the kind of thing that used to be prevalent in in jazz, uh, where jazz musicians went from club to club to a wide variety of uh, uh, of tasks, and the uh, companies have been uh, very innovative and uh, very successful. And of course, uh, what attracted California's attention in a bill that goes far beyond the gig economy is uh, is the fact that they were viewed as exploiting their workers, uh, paying them far below what other uh, companies providing the same service, I think approximately 30% difference between uh, other companies that uh, have been suing them under uh, business practices legislation here in California. Diane, California has a large population of farm workers that are itinerant and seasonal. How's AB5 designed to uh, affect them? I mean, I think it's designed to protect them in the same way um, that it protects all independent contractors by extending rights and protections that aren't normally available to them. I mean, I, I think what's interesting about our labor market and our labor regulations as it currently stands is that it essentially penalizes you if you're not a full-time employee. So if you choose to work independently, which uh, many independent contractors do work that way by choice, the majority of them, in fact, um, or if you must work that way, if you're not able to get a full-time job, uh, you really are. You're taxed additionally through a dedicated tax, and you are stripped of many of the rights and protections that are awarded only to employees. I think the concern with this bill is, you know, I'm based in Boston, I live in Massachusetts, and we've had a bill like this on the books for a decade. And there are plenty of independent contractors that are still working at, on gig economy platforms and elsewhere. The law has done very little. Um, there's been no discernible impact on the ability to curb the growth of independent contractors here. So I think it's interesting that California chose to model their legislation on the same ABC test that has not had the impact that I think that they're looking for through this bill in California. I also think it's interesting that California already has laws on the books that deal with the misclassification of workers. So if you look at like Senate Bill 459, which has been passed. It was passed in 2012. Uh, Governor Brown signed it. That already gives the state a way to go after companies that are misclassifying workers and fine them and levy penalties and additional damages. And, and the courts here have also established a very definitive, I think, seven or eight step test to define what is an independent contractor and what isn't an independent contractor. She's quite right in pointing out that uh, Massachusetts uh, does have uh, an ABC, so-called ABC test, which is uh, what I described in connection with California. But so far as we can ascertain, the principal reason, and I, I, I take it as a given that uh, she's had that it's had no effect, is uh, the principal reason for that is that the Federal Arbitration Act of 1925 
has served as a defense, and that is that uh, every time there, the Supreme Court in a series of decisions has made it impossible to sue uh, in many under many employment laws, uh, uh, relegating the claims to employer-controlled and promulgated arbitration procedures. And so far as we've been able to ascertain, the suits that were brought were dismissed in Massachusetts uh, on the grounds of the Federal uh, Arbitration Act. The California did learn, I think, in part from that experience by giving authority to both the attorney general and to city attorneys to sue, which thus far have those suits thus far have been deemed not to be covered by the Federal Arbitration Act. And so there is a way open for um, them to be resolved on their uh, on their merits. What are the exceptions in this statute? I mean, what are the workarounds, Diane, that, that uh, can occur here? To keep people classified as independent contractors instead of classifying them as employees and becoming obligated to provide benefits. Yeah, I mean, under this law, you know, there's a legal presumption that if people are working for you, then they're employees, and the burden of proof is on the employer to demonstrate if that's not the case. But as a practical matter, you know, in order for the law to have any effect, there has to be a lawsuit. I mean, somebody has to say to the employer, we believe that you're misclassifying these workers, and you have to demonstrate that. So even though this law goes into effect January 1st, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, we'll snap our fingers and everybody will be an employee and suddenly have all of the benefits and rights. The way the law is set up is that it's enforced by legal action and those legal actions need to take place. And those can take a very long time. I mean, the the court decision that it's based on, the Dynamex ruling, took a decade. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty around how the lawsuits will will go. I also think the ABC test is still difficult to enforce. I mean, the Massachusetts Attorney General wrote an advisory saying, basically, um, you know, this is really difficult to enforce. The usual course of business isn't defined, and it's, there's no judicial precedent that makes it easy to establish guidance. And I think, you know, the test C, does the, uh, does the worker have a similar business particularly now if you're talking about an Uber driver. I mean, if they're driving for other companies, then are they customarily engaged in this type of work and do they have a similar independent business? It's difficult. The test is not well-defined. It's not clear. It's not objective. And I think it's going to be difficult to implement and enforce this law. And before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight Platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy, on average, how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJLegal.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. 
Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com with the code L2L10. That's L2L, the number 10. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Diane Mulcahy. She's an adjunct lecturer in the entrepreneurship division at Massachusetts Babson College and author of The Geek Economy. And with us as well is William B. Gould IV, the Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School and former chairman of the National Labor Relations Board. And with that, we'll drop right back into the conversation. My, my, we have quite a problem here in California, don't we? I think that there is, you know, there will be uh, a good deal of litigation uh, uh, about this. But uh, I think when it comes to Uber and Lyft, it will be difficult to say that because drivers are working for more than one company, they're in a separate independent business when the employer determines what the fare will be and the employer determines what the percentage of the driver's take will be. And the employer determines whether the driver will even be able to continue to work uh, for the company, or whether he'll be or she'll be deactivated as uh, uh, under procedures that uh, only the company decides for itself. So I think that uh, there's going to be, uh, there's no doubt about the fact that uh, there will be uh, a good deal of litigation. And uh, whenever there are lawyers present, uh, we know that uh, that's the experience. But uh, I think that the uh, fundamentally, uh, what we did here was we substituted uh, through Dynamex, which was adopted by the legislature and really extended beyond wage and hour to other employment conditions like unemployment compensation, uh, workers' compensation, anti-discrimination uh, legislation, which, of course, independent contractors cannot avail themselves of, uh, even if you're uh, harassed sexually or if you're discriminated against on the basis of race or sexual orientation. If you're an independent contractor, you're at the mercy of the uh, party that you deal with. So, yes, uh, there will be uh, a good deal of uh, litigation. But what we did through Dynamax was substitute a fairly clear standard for a wide variety of uh, standards, so-called primary and secondary standards, which were more than a dozen in number. Uh, and which, by their very nature, invited a litigation. Uh, Uber says uh, that uh, uh, their drivers, uh, they're not in the business of transportation, uh, but they have uh, you know, put that there in the business of providing uh, an algorithmic way of, uh, of, uh, from the platform of uh, making the uh, drivers available to customers. Well, thus far, just every court in both uh, the United States and in Europe that has been confronted with that issue has uh, made short work of it and dismissed it. Uh, we'll see what happens. We don't know what the uh, judges will say in the future. But the new standard is a much tighter and precise standard and should, on balance, in the years to come, diminish litigation that would otherwise emerge under uh, relatively vague standards in place uh, here in California until Dynamax. Are there going to be any type of definitions put into regulations here as a consequence of that, of the recent statute? Will the Labor Department step up and define the things that Diane is concerned about, William? There may well be uh, regulations in uh, 
labor, but I'm not sure that they will, in the final analysis, I think uh, the courts, perhaps the Supreme Court, will define. I think the, the one thing that's of concern and that will have to be flushed out in the litigation will be, uh, uh, you know, if the employer has a number of businesses in, in uh, different places, what happens then? I think that, I think that there, uh, there is uh, an opening for litigation on the, the so-called B standard of the ABC test. Uh, and, uh, but my goodness, uh, with, as with so much in the way of legislation, uh, we are, we're dealing with legislation in the labor field that was enacted uh, decades ago that is still being defined in the courts. If, if that was uh, a basis for denying protection, we would never have uh, protection at all. The fact of the matter is that uh, we've become a, a two-job and three-job economy, uh, sometimes because of uh, uh, the, the workers' wishes, but uh, very frequently uh, because uh, workers have to work two or three jobs to uh, keep bread on the table and to foster some kind of uh, environment of opportunities for their children. Diane, is this thing really designed to put us back to the times of the gray flannel suit and, you know, one job and uh, and someone had stayed at home and cared for the children and, you know, a turkey in every pot, uh, you know, as, as the slogans say? I don't know. I mean, I it's an odd um, piece of legislation in the sense that if you look at the tools that California has in its legislative and regulatory toolbox, to address companies that hire independent workers, you know, I mean, Dynamex is on the books. Senate Bill 459 is on the books. There are ways that there, there's also, you know, legislation that they could pass that's much more specific or that's much more financially pecuniary to the employers, you know, tax legislation around companies that hire independent workers. There seem to be a lot of, like, much more concrete direct ways to deal with this issue rather than passing a piece of legislation that requires, you know, intense litigation in order to implement and enforce. So I wonder what the intent is for the state. I mean, I think what's most interesting about California when you're talking about the politicians is they're a little bit between a rock and a hard place because they're well supported by labor, but also by the technology companies that are implementing these business models that rely on independent workers. And so it's hard to take a side uh, if you're a politician and, and you rely on, on that financing. But I think if California were really intent on extending protections and benefits or trying to get people, companies to hire more employees, there were there are more direct ways to do it. I mean, I, I think part of the problem with the bill is that it relies on this very outdated classification system where you're either an employee or an independent worker. And it just doesn't reflect the way the workforce works today. I mean, a lot of people are both. They're an employee and they work on the side. Or they're not an employee at all. They just have a portfolio of gigs. So they're an independent worker, but for many different clients or employers. So this classification system is having a lot of trouble. We're having a lot of trouble kind of, you know, forcing 
the workforce to fit into that very old and outdated uh, system. Diane, I need to interrupt for a moment because William has a short time frame, and we'd like to wrap up and give him the opportunity to put together with his final thoughts and contact information if he'd like to offer it. William? Thanks. I I would like to just uh, sum up by saying I think that what has motivated uh, California to act as it has is, uh, as I said at the outset, the growing inequality which uh, has emerged these past four decades and worsens uh, the gap between uh, rich and poor. I think that this is a, a theme that we're going to see both in this country where the gap is worse uh, and in many other Western countries where it exists as well. A wide variety of remedies are in order to uh, uh, to change this. And I think that uh, what finally brought this to a head in connection with AB5 was the realization that uh, uh, not only by workers and by unions, but also by uh, the business, some portions of the business community, which were competed against unfairly, that the uh, uh, employees were being exploited uh, uh, severely uh, and uh, the reason that the Uber and Lyft companies and others, uh, Postmates and the like, are, are fighting this so severely is that uh, putting $90 billion into fighting this on the ballot in 2020 is that they uh, will, will uh, lose so much uh, in terms of uh, profits, which uh, otherwise would go to themselves rather than wages to the workers uh, whose uh, position has been diminished these past 40 years. William, and thank you so very much for giving us some, so much of your time today. I know you've got a busy schedule. Would you like to offer your contact information to our listeners if they want to reach out to you? Surely, surely. It's uh, wbgould at stanford.edu. Uh, that's probably the best way to, the, uh, that's the uh, email, best way to reach me. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Diane, I'd like to continue with you uh, and just ask you kind of a follow-up question, because as William signed off, it made me think, are we ever going to see a set of national standards that can address this, or is this going to continue to be addressed piecemeal by the states, and I think in some instances here in California, by the cities that set different labor standards? I think all signs in the short term point towards uh, this being dealt with at the state level, Earlier this year, the um, federal Labor Department had issued an opinion letter suggesting that the workers of gig economy platform companies are contractors. So the signal from this administration and the federal government has been that they are taking the foot off the gas pedal in terms of looking for ways to incentivize companies or force companies to hire employees instead of independent contractors or extend any rights or benefits or protections to independent contractors. So that's been a clear signal at the federal level. Um, so I think we are going to say, at least under, you know, next year's an election year, so everything can change. But um, as long as this administration continues, I think any changes will occur at the state level. And we've seen how uh, the federal government has stepped in or really chosen, I think, in some instances not to step in. When you're dealing with this on a state level, we have the inequities of public employees and private employees uh, and, and independent contractors. Will there ever be a point where 
the benefits that are available to a public employee are the same benefits that are available to private employees? Yeah, I actually don't think they're available in the public sector either. I mean, it is true that if you're a public employee, you still have access to a defined benefit pension. But if you look at those pensions, most of them are currently underfunded. So I think it's a question mark whether those benefits will materialize going forward in the medium and long term for those workers. And I think, you know, the public sector used to offer a sense of job security that was not, you know, at a level that was unavailable in the private sector. And I don't think that's the case anymore either. I think there really is no job security in our economy. And one of the reasons that workers are going to independent work is so that they have diverse streams of income and, and control over the work that they do. They don't they, they feel like it's too risky to put all their economic eggs, so to speak, into one employer's basket. So so I don't think that sense of security is there. Given what we've seen in the change in society from more, you know, we've we've gone from agrarian to industrial and informational, uh, and we've made a even a leap, I think, beyond the information age into the technological age. Uh, is this kind of root shift in the way that our world exists now? Is this the cause of these kind of changes? I know that you and William thought that it started back in the 70s. And it, does that tie in with the changes in the Internet and the computer and the, the way that life has changed as a consequence? In many ways, I, I don't think this is anything new under the sun. I mean, people have always worked independently. Um, people in the trades, in the creative professions have worked independently over time. I think the phenomenon of, you know, having, being a full-time employee and having a single employer over the course of your career is relatively recent and, you know, may only end up being a blip. I don't know. Um, Certainly it looks like that's the way it's going as people return to this independent work. I do think that technology has the, the impact that technology has had has been to remove the friction in the marketplace that made it difficult for people to work independently on projects, assignments, t- tasks, and gigs. And that's why these platforms, and not just Uber and Lyft, but also platforms that connect you know, MBAs to consulting projects and software developers to technology projects, all of the platforms and the ability to work remotely has really had a huge impact in um, driving the growth of independent work in the gig economy. I think you're you're got that spot on. How do you think that unions have affected this? Or is it contemporaneous with the uh, with the growth of unions or the fall, the beginning of the fall of the union in the in the seventies? Yeah, I mean the unions are really such a small and I don't want to say insignificant, but rel- far less powerful part of our labor market than they ever have been. And I I think what we're seeing is the erosion of the old employment model where, you know, employees were given the the rights and the protections and the benefits that the unions fought so hard for. I think where we're left today is considering how do we want to treat workers? How do we want to treat anybody who works? Because this distinction, this artificial distinction between an employee and and, an independent contractor is just increasingly meaningless and blurred and gray. And so the question in front of us is, what are the rights and the protections and the benefits that we want to give to people who work 
regardless of how they choose to work, whether it's full-time or part-time or some of the time or remotely or in an office or how or how much or where or when. We just need to, because the the workforce is becoming um, so fluid, so dynamic and so variable and so entrepreneurial that I think trying to force it into these old classifications and allocate benefits and protections based on your membership in one of those categories is a fairly rigid way of thinking compared to where we are today. And I think that really needs to be updated. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're, again, spot on. Thank you for so much. Well, we've had uh, some wonderful guests today to talk about AB5 and the issues between independent contractors and employees. Uh, William B. Gold IV, Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School, and Diane Mulcahy, an adjunct lecturer of the in Entrepreneurship Division at Babson College and the author of The Gig Economy. Sounds like a great book. Diane, would you like to wrap up with your quick final thoughts and your contact information and as we close out? Yeah, I mean, I think my final thoughts on AB5 are that um, this is a bill with a lot of bark and no bite. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, if you look at the Massachusetts experience, I think what's going to happen when this law goes into effect in 2020 is it's just going to start the litigation clock. And as a practical matter for these companies and for the workers, very little will change. So I hope that California looks at other ways to accomplish its objectives that are more direct and more effective. The best way for listeners to learn about the work that I do in the gig economy or get in touch with me is through my website, which is dianemulcahy.com. Great. Thank you, Diane. Very much appreciate your time today as well. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. At this time, we'd like to Have you rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app? You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. You can join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.